Before the entirety of Christianity's existence, there has also been the existence and regular use of creeds and confessions. The English word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which simply means I believe. Creeds are basic statements of belief. Many scholars trace the existence of creeds, even right to Scripture itself, with the most essential creedal statement found in Scripture is this, Jesus is Lord. This is an early creed, a statement of belief over and against the popular and required secular creed of the Roman Empire, which demanded that all of its citizens declare that Caesar is Lord. But to affirm that Jesus is Lord would cost you your life, and for many it did. In the early years of the church, a bishop named Polycarp was threatened with death if he didn't curse Christ and swear allegiance to Rome. On his way to execution on the day of his death, a soldier pleaded with him to reproach Christ. Polycarp famously uttered this response, Eighty-six years I have served him, and never once has he wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who saved me? For Polycarp, his creed was, Jesus is Lord. That was his profession of faith. Not dissimilar to creeds are confessions, which are more detailed statements of theology and expressions of orthodoxy. There have been many confessions through the years, just to name a few. The Westminster Confession, the Augsburg Confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. There's even a New Hampshire Confession, believe it or not. One of the most popular confessional statements comes to us in the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563, written in a series of questions and answers. The first question is this, what is your only comfort in life and death? And then the answer is given, that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and has delivered me from, the pow- from all the power of the devil and so perseveres me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation and therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. This statement of belief has been memorized and recited and confessed by countless believers for centuries. We would do well to remember such statements even today. But there is a blessing in confessing Christ and in sharing a testimony of saving faith before other people. And it's the the practice that countless Christians, every Christian, has done through the ages. And confessing Christ, it encourages us, it gives us strength, it even gives us fortitude to confess Christ. But there's another reason to confess Christ, because He has commanded us to. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10 in your copy of Scripture, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. Now Matthew 10 presents Jesus' commands and exhortation to the twelve disciples as they're being sent on mission. But as we've seen, much of what he says to them is applicable to us. He is speaking to them in real time, in context, on the day, but he's almost speaking past them on some level. 
He says things to them that are meant to be carried forward into the future decades of their ministry and then even beyond into our ministry and even to the end of the age when he returns. The Lord calls all of us to be his disciples and he commands us to follow him. However, we know that there is a cost to discipleship. And we read about this last week and I want to look at that text again just briefly here. Matthew 10, we were here last week, verses 24 to 31. Let's just look at this together. Jesus tells them, the disciples, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, which means Lord of the dung heap, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the, roof, uh, upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. So he introduces this block of teaching here with the maxim that a disciple is not above the teacher in verse 24, followed by the exhortation, it is enough for the disciple to become like a teacher. That should be our goal, to be like him in our discipleship. What is a disciple? Well, it is a student. It's a committed learner. But more than a generic student, it is one who attaches himself to a teacher for the purpose of becoming like them. And this is what every Christian is called to do. We are to learn from Christ in order to become like Him. Paul instructed the church in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. In the most basic terms, Christian discipleship is all about learning to think and act and speak like Jesus. Yet Jesus says that doing this will bring about some measure of suffering for the sake of His name. But He encourages the disciples that even though we will endure trials, we are not to fear because, well, one, God vindicates His people in the truth. Two, that God is greater than man, therefore don't fear those who kill the body only, fear the, fear the one who can kill the soul and the body, that's what he says. Or number three, the reason not to fear, because God has pledged to be our protector and our provider even in the midst of opposition. And so with these comforts set before us, the Lord then moves to a series of strong exhortations in verses 32 through 39. The next section in his discourse, again, this is happening in the matter of moments, but in the frame of his thinking, where he's going with his argument, Jesus is a brilliant communicator. The way he's building his argument and leading these toward these exhortations is stellar. But he sets all of this up for a purpose because he's going to exhort the disciples in a strong way in verses 32 to 39. He calls all who would be his disciples to follow him in their confession, in their consecration, and in their devotion. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at each of these exhortations as we move through the text of Scripture. But this morning, I want to examine what I'm calling the disciples' confession. The disciples' confession in verses 32 and 33. 
He's building on the encouragements of verses 26 through 31, which we just read. And Jesus, he's calling the disciples to respond. Look at verses 32 and 33. He says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus connects his exhortation to the previous verses with the word therefore. Whenever you see therefore written in Scripture, you know that's therefore a reason. There's a connection to some other part. Either, either it's the verses uh, immediately previous to that or an argument previous to that. But there's always a reason that we see this connection in the Scriptures. So therefore is there. He's addressing the most challenging aspects of Christianity. Jesus is removing, in the previous verses, all excuses for fear and for worry by offering the comfort of God to the, to the disciples. So again, any reason that they would have not to confess Him out of worry or dread or fear, He removes those obstacles. He says, don't be afraid, don't fear. And you get the sense that here, on a practical level here, th- there's really no viable reason not to confess Christ for fear of persecution. But now that Jesus has granted God, or God's provision, His provident protection, His promise to us, there's no good reason, again, humanly speaking, there's no good reason that we should not be confessing Christ and following Him. Again, there's a theological argument behind this. There's reasons why a person would not confess Christ. We're going to talk about that uh, a little bit later and, and further down the road here. But that's really not what's in view here. You have to think about this on a practical level. He has removed the obstacles. There is no good reason. Therefore, he brings in this exhortation. Remember, this exhortation is spoken to the disciples, not to the crowds. This isn't to all the the generic audience in front of him. These are to those who are following him. And the thrust is that every disciple, every disciple, that's you, me, every Christian in history, every disciple must be one who confesses Christ. You can't be a Christian without Christ. And so many try. It's very weird. But that's what we do. We have this popularized Christianity that wants to have maxims and values and morals and do-gooder things. And yet when we talk about Jesus, they say, well, I like Jesus. Yes, but do you confess Him as Lord and Savior? Well, hang on a second now. But what does it mean to confess Christ? That's going to be the focus of our our discussion today. What does it mean for us to confess Christ? The Greek word that's used here in the original language is the Greek word homologeo. It literally means to affirm or to agree with, have of the same words in the same mind. This word appears in the New Testament 23 times. It's translated in many different ways, depending on the context. In a few cases, the word is translated acknowledge. For example, in 2 John chapter, or excuse me, 2 John 7, the talks about deceivers who have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. It's the same word here for confession. They don't acknowledge. So here, homologeo refers to an acknowledgement of truth or fact. Uh, Acts chapter 24, verse 14, this same word is rendered admit. So this is an, an admission of truth. 
Jesus uses the same word in Matthew 7, 23, and says that on the last day, he will declare, the same word, homo legeo, he will declare to false converts, I never knew you. Matthew 14, 7, the word homo legeo appears uh, and refers to a promise with some kind of an oath. There's a promise attached to that. So all of these uh, renderings in the context give us sort of a sense of the word, acknowledgement, admission, declaration, promise, even adding to the depth of meaning uh, in Hebrews 13, 15 presents the word homologeo as giving thanks, giving thanks. And so we sort of enter into this joyful, thankful posture of claiming the name of Christ. But in the most general sense, our confession pertains to, as one scholar, Leon Morris, notes, an open declaration of allegiance to Christ. An open declaration of allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, the statement in verses 32 and 33 is pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of mystery here. Look at it again with me. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven, and then the inverse, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. This is an ultimatum, really. Up to this point, he's given a lot of very, uh, I don't want to say broad, but a lot of um, nuanced teaching and lots of symbolism and metaphor and encouragement and exhortation, and there's been a, there's been a lot to the, the discussion, but now he's entering into the point in his talk with these men that now he's calling them to action. Now he's given them an ultimatum. Everything hangs on this. What is the this? Our confession. Our confession. If we confess our allegiance to Christ openly, he will take the meanings into the consideration. He will acknowledge and declare and even promise us before the Father. However, if we deny him, the word deny in the Greek is our neomai, it means to disown. If we deny or disown or reject him before other people, he will deny and disown us before the Father. Christ is the key here. Christ is the key here. Why? Why? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says there is only one mediator between God and man. Who is that? Christ Jesus, right? He's our mediator. He's the one who stands in the gap between us and God. He's the bridge. He is the bridge. Therefore, 1 John 2, 1 calls Jesus our advocate with the Father. He's our advocate, our defense attorney, if you will. See, because all of us have sinned infinitely and we have no part with God. And on our own as fallen creatures, frankly, my friends, God doesn't want us in our sinful condition. Our self-righteousness, according to Scripture, is disgusting to Him. He doesn't want any part of it. We think that we're good before God. We think we can be good without God. He he wants nothing to do with that. He hates our self-righteousness, which is why we need a righteous advocate, someone to stand for us, one who will not only pay for our sins and cleanse us, but also offer us to the Father for reconciliation. Jesus grabs us, brings us along with him, and otherwise we would be detestable to God. He says, Father, these are mine. I paid for them, I cleansed them, I bought them, I redeemed them, they're mine, and now they're yours. And the Bible says that the Father accepts us because of Christ. 
And let me just say to the contrary, if you think you can get to God or you think you're good with God apart from Jesus, you are foolishly and grotesquely mistaken. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This world is very religious. Even when they tell you they're not. Even atheism is a religion. The presupposition that God doesn't exist and therefore I'm mad at Him. That's what atheism essentially is. But it's all a religion. Even the the political, socio-political environment that we're in right now, this is the religion of secular humanism. There are gods, there are rituals, there is a church for this, even though they don't call it that. There is a dogma, there is an ideology. Everyone is religious, because all of us were made to worship something or someone, and if you don't worship God through Christ, you worship something else, yourself or the enemy. But the bottom line is that there's only one way to get to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. The only way to get to the Father is through the Son. The only way. And so Jesus, His promise is to confess us before the Father, and that is of vital importance. Vital importance. He is our link. He's our only hope. And so if that's true, and that Jesus is the only way, then we would do well to pay attention with regards to his, what he says here about our confession. So the question is, what does it mean to confess Christ? I want to unpack this a little bit this morning. I want to explore three key aspects of what it means to confess Christ. So three key aspects here. The first will be the profession itself. The second thing will be the particulars of our confession. And the third thing will be the practice of our confession. So I want to look at number the first one. The profession itself. Turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 10. If you have your copy of Scripture, Romans chapter 10. Romans 10 drops us in the middle of what appears to be Paul's sort of peripheral discussion on the salvation of Israel. In chapter 10, he sets up the difference between the false justification of the Jews by law. They believed that if they could keep the law, they could attain righteousness, and therefore God was pleased with them. They already believed that they were the chosen people, but to keep our standing with God, we have, to be, we have to be good Jews. And so we have to do the things that are fitting for the law. We're justified by the works of the law. That was their self-justification. In verse 6, he addresses the righteousness, however, based on faith. So Paul is making this argument for faith now, which is based on this message. He says, the word of faith which we are preaching. So Paul is setting up these two ways Two ways of salvation. One is self-justification through works, and the other is the message of faith in Christ alone. But what is the core of this faith? What is essential for us to believe? He answers this in verses 9 and 10. Again, the word of faith which he is preaching, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now Paul lays out two things in this verse here. And if I could even break this down even further, I'm not really a big fan of outlines that just kind of break down into subpoints ad nauseum. I think it gets confusing. But I really do want to catch the nuance of what he's doing here. Paul here, in terms of confession, is giving us two components, two parts to this. And again, if we could break it down and we'll see, there's a difference here between the confession of faith 
and the possession of faith. Okay, the confession of faith and the possession of faith. He uses this shorthand biblical creed. Remember, I mentioned this at the beginning of the sermon. Jesus is Lord. That's the credo. That's the statement of belief. It's shorthand, really, but it expresses the core of Christian belief. Now, to confess Jesus as Lord, you certainly have to acknowledge that Jesus is both Lord of this life and Lord of the next life. You can't just say, Jesus is my Lord when I go to heaven and not here, right? Because that would be completely contrary to what we note of of our Christian life and our Christian testimony. So Jesus Christ, when you become a Christian, when you're saved by grace through faith, when God redeems you and saves you, you're saved now. He brings you out of darkness now and you live on this earth in this life for him and then you will also live for him for eternity. So he's Lord of this life and Lord of the next life. But the question is, well, how do I get from this life to the next life? Well, the only way to do that is to have your sins forgiven. The body of sin that you have and I have. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that the doctrines of first importance are this. He said this is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Let me tie these two together. You can't confess Jesus as Lord without acknowledging his Lordship, which includes the payment of our sins on the cross and the resurrection of, uh, from the dead into new life. And so again, Jesus as Lord, as a creed, becomes shorthand, meaning he is Lord of my salvation He's Lord of my life here on earth. He's Lord of my life to come. He is my everything. He is my all. And Paul says that you must unashamedly confess the Lordship of Christ with your mouth. He said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul's not ashamed of this. This is the crux and the core of who we are as Christians. But he says you must confess with your mouth. That's your verbal confession. That's when someone walks up to you and says, oh, where are you going on Sunday morning? Well, I'm going to church. Why are you doing that? Well, because I believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ saved me from my sins. He redeemed me. I was a train wreck before. I sinned against God in every possible way, but I understood that I needed to repent of my sins, that Christ died on the cross to pay for me, I believed in Him, I've turned from my sins, and He's given me new life in Him, and now I live for Him. And so therefore, once a week I go to assemble with the other believers in in my town, and we worship God together. And they go, oh. (laughs) Right? Just like that. But I mean, isn't that really how it is? I mean, there's opportunities all over the place to confess Christ. Someone sees you with the Bible and say, what you doing? Someone asks where you're going to be on Sunday morning. Someone sees a cross around your neck. Someone walks in your home and sees the art on your wall. Someone notices you don't swear very often. There's all kinds of opportunities for us to confess Christ, and we must do this with our mouth. People aren't just going to know how to get to heaven because they see you live well. Now, that's an evidence of something, but we must confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord. But there's something else here. He also adds to that, We must also believe, he says, in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This is the actual possession of your faith. What you actually believe inside. 
See, it's not enough to confess Christ only. Because again, you could be a false convert and confess Christ. Oh, I love Jesus. Oh, I love him. Really? Look at your life. Does your life manifest that you believe him? What do you actually believe inside your heart? If God were to ask you right now, say he were to come down incarnate again and be next to you and have a conversation and say, what do you really believe inside your heart? What if he said to you, do you love me? Oh, of course I do, Lord. Do you really love me? Sure. No, do you love me? How would you answer? Knowing he sees your heart. Could you answer honestly and say, yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, Lord, I believe in you. I believe that you came, lived here, not just as a historical person. You came here as the God-man from heaven. Lived here perfectly, died an excruciating death on the cross, and then rose the third day to give life. I believe that. You must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the only way you can do that theologically, the only way you can do that is if God has given you a new heart through regeneration that is able to believe. God has to do something inside of you. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Again, you can say words, but you really can't confess it with your heart unless the Spirit of God gives you life through regeneration. You can render yourself a liar if you confess Christ and don't believe Him. Because in some circles, not as much in New England, I'm actually thankful that New England is as destitute as it is spiritually for only one reason, that people are honest with you. You go to church on Sunday? No, why would I? Well, now I know where you stand. You go to the South, you go to church, everybody goes to church. Really? Do you believe in Jesus? Oh, we all believe in Jesus. But there many people, and pastors will tell you, I know pastors in the South, and they will tell you, a lot of people in my church aren't saved. And their job now is to convince a person who claims to be a Christian who really isn't that they're not saved and need to be saved. It's more work. For most people up here, they're coming with a clean slate. They want, either want to know about Jesus because they're curious about who he is, or they'll sit there and they'll tell you, yeah, it's not popular to be a Christian, but I'm here because I love Christ. I'm thankful for your honesty. That is, if you are being honest before God. But Paul says no one can do this. No one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so your Christian confession includes the words that you say, but it's also the very belief in that confession. Do you believe the things that you say? Now, I'm not talking about depth of feeling and depth of faith and anything like that. I'm not talking about how strong is your faith. Not about that. I'm talking about do you believe your own confession? It's a simple question. Do you believe what you say? Now this brings up a common question that people oftentimes ask. What is the minimum that I must believe to be a Christian? That's a challenging question, isn't it? Because again, a person comes into church, they're newly saved. They look at someone who's been a Christian for 40 years and they go, I don't know all that stuff. What, what do I do? If that's a Christian, I don't know all that stuff. What do I need to be saved? What do I need to confess? What do I need to believe? And you could draw that, I believe, from many, many texts. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Galatians 1, 4. John 3, 16. Lots of different places. But I think when you actually boil it down to an essential confession that you must make is this. That Jesus died on the cross to pay for sins 
and rose again the third day. And then Paul adds, according to the Scriptures. Now, that doesn't mean that you, that, that's all you must ever believe. But as you proceed, what is the core? What is the essence of what it means to be a Christian? See, here's the thing. Faith grows over time. Faith grows over time. It begins as a newly germinated seed. That then, that is the confession that Jesus died for me and rose for me. That's, that's the germination of that seed. That's the very first sprouting of the plant of your faith. But then as it begins to grow and blossom, uh, it, other truths begin to find their way into that confession. It sprouts more truth and more things to believe. And the more and more confident that you become of God's life-changing revelation of orthodoxy, the more you begin to add those things to your confession. You begin to add uh, the, the inerrancy of Scripture and, and the, the, the simplicity, the, the divine simplicity of God and His attributes and His character and the sinlessness of Christ and the, the hypostatic... I mean, you can just keep on going and going and going. These things become core and germane to who you are as a Christian. They become part of your confession. Each new apprehension of truth brings with it new joy and new faith and expanded worship of God. And you might ask, well, what does that look like? I'm glad you asked. I want to look at now the particulars of the Christian confession. What are the particulars? Now, we've already seen that to be faithful in our confession of Jesus as Lord, we must verbally confess and believe in the core of our being the essence of the gospel. Again, that, that Christ died on the cross to pay for sins and resurrected the third day to bring new life. But the more that you grow in knowledge of the Christian faith, the more that you begin to embrace many cardinal, cardinal doctrines that are laid out in the Scriptures. These are essential doctrines. And the question is, well, how do I know which ones are essential? Somebody asked me that a couple years ago. What would you say is the essence, the, the non-negotiables of the Christian life? Now, again, that, that can be a tricky question. If you go too far into your own, uh, your own preferences, you know, there are secondary doctrinal issues that you could hold to that you would treat as primary, and they may not be primary, but what is the, the essence of Christianity? What is essential doctrine? Well, my friends, this is where church history can help us a little bit. Now, it's not that church history or man-made creeds is inspired by God or authoritative or inerrant. It's not. However, there is a sense that the testimony of what Christians have has always believed, there's a, there's a an agreement, what is, what is known as ecumenical. I don't mean in terms of many different religions. I'm talking about what the totality of the Christian faith has always believed, even apart from denominationalism. One such historical confession is known as the Apostles' Creed. Written in the early centuries of the church, the Apostles' Creed really becomes the basis of every other ecumenical creed. If you were to study all the early church creeds, and you would notice the thread here, the Apostles' Creed kind of comes first, and then the Nicene Creed is built on the back of that. Uh, the, the definition of Chalcedon is built on that. The Athanasian Creed is built on that. They just keep on building on what they know to be essentially true. So every single Christian, all, all throughout the, the course of, of church history, has believed what is contained in this creed. And I believe while you can and should believe more than this, for example, justification by faith alone, the hypostatic union, the divine inspiration of scriptures. I mean, these things are not contained in this creed alone. You, I believe that you need to believe those things. But you certainly cannot believe any less 
and maintain Christian orthodoxy. Okay, again, you can believe more, and I believe that you're blessed and, un- and you're correct to believe more, but you cannot believe less than this. What is the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Whence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, a few quick points of clarification. When the creed reads that Jesus descended into hell, it's referring to the Lord descending to the dead, to Him dying. That's what that's talking about. And when it refers to the Holy Catholic Church, that's a reference to the universal church, not to the Roman Catholic Church. We'd have differences with them on some doctrinal points. But it's universal. This creed existed before any of those things took place. But this is the confession, this is the sound confession of every single Christian for 20 centuries. All of those statements of faith are derived from the Scriptures. They've been rightly interpreted, rightly understood, and confessed by every Christian, even if they're not aware of this creed itself, that they, all, they believe these truths, that these are important. To deny these truths is to be out of step from the bounds of accepted orthodoxy. Of course, as a Protestant, I believe we are meant to affirm more things like justification by faith alone and more than that. But again, the core confession of every Christian is the Lordship of Christ expressed through His death, burial, and resurrection. That's key. But again, as your faith grows, so does the content of your confession. So if you are new in the faith, take heart. If you believe that Jesus died for you on the cross and paid for your sins so you don't have to, and then was buried in the ground, and then resurrected the third day to give you new life, that is the confession and belief of a Christian. Take heart. And then as you learn, as you grow, and as you enter into discipleship and learning and growing in the faith, you begin to add more glorious truth to your confession. But this brings us to a third component here. The practice of your confession. I want you to turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. In Paul's short letter to Titus, his disciple, he outlines the requirement for leaders in chapter 1. He charges this young pastor to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance to the teaching in in verse 9 here. However, there are those who reject what is in accordance with sound doctrine. There are those who turn away from sound doctrine. And so, in verses 15 and 16 of the same chapter, so Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he makes a very sobering comment about the nature of their profession. Again, these are those who would claim to be Christians, but then he says something very interesting. Titus 1, 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled... And unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Listen to this. They profess to know God, 
but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. This truth that is taught here, it's taught in many places in the Bible. Lots of places in Scripture teach this very same truth. But the essence of it is this. It is possible to confess Jesus with your mouth and yet deny the reality of your faith in your heart through your deeds. Now he's talking not about when a Christian stumbles into sin and falls and needs to repent. He's not talking about Christian perfectionism. When you sin, the Bible says you have an advocate with the Father, so go to Him. When you sin, brothers and sisters, confess your sins to God, find forgiveness, be restored, and keep on living. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a person who claims the name of Christ and yet lives totally unrecognizably as a Christian. They live a defiled life, a detestable life, a disobedient life. And Paul says that renders any good deeds that they might do out of their own self-righteousness, he says, it renders these things to be worthless. He actually says they are worthless because they have no saving faith, no genuine faith. Their confession's a sham. And sadly, we see this prevalently today. Those who might go to church and claim to be a Christian... Maybe on Facebook they've checked the box that says, I'm Christian. But you scan through their page and there's nothing Christian about their confession at all. Or they'll tell you that they wear a cross around their neck. They, t- they say they go to church. They say they believe in Jesus. But then their life is, com- is a complete mess in terms of debauchery. They sin in the most open, unrepentant, rebellious way. Again, I'm not talking about Christian perfectionism. I'm talking about denying Jesus by the life that you live. You're not going to get to heaven and say, well, Jesus, at least I said I was a Christian. Because what does he say? Matthew 7, 21 to 23. People who come to him, they claim to believe in him. They even claim to do things for him. And he says to them, contrary to their faith, he says to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. So you might fool people here, but you're not going to fool him in heaven. If you deny your profession, deny your confession by the things that you do, He will deny you before His Father in heaven. It is so essential, not just that you have the right words, but that those words mean something to you and are real. That when you say that Christ has forgiven my sins, live as a forgiven person who hates his sin or her sin and desires to live righteously for God. Again, you're justified by faith alone. You're not going to muscle your way into heaven by your deeds. But beloved, if you've been saved, live as though you're saved. Honor God with your life. Not because it gets you anywhere in terms of graces, but because it's a life that is thankful to God for salvation. A life that that bears honor to the very name of Christ. A life that desires to give testimony to other people that they might come to Christ. You think living a rebellious life attracts people to Jesus? It doesn't. And and this is always how it goes. And I'm digressing here, but this is always how it goes. You see a news headline, a prominent Christian. A a Christian preacher, a Christian business person, a, a Christian performer, a musician, whatever. 
they're going along, everything's going great, and, and something happens and they step out on their wife, or they embezzle money from their own ministry, or something terrible happens, and what happens to people who follow them? They all wash their hands and they walk away. And how many people will walk away, not from the person they followed, but from Christ, because they say, well, if that guy can't even keep it straight, then what, what's my hope? Now again, I'm not saying that it's on you to save people. But my goodness, do not use your life as a stumbling block for other people to trip over. If they're going to stumble over you, let it be your confession of faith. You say you love Jesus and you're forgiven of sins and you should repent of your sins and trust in Jesus too. Let them stumble over that. Not over the way that you live in a way that is contrary to your testimony. Jesus says to those who do not love Him, who do not believe in Him, who do not know Him, He says, depart from Me, I never knew you. I never knew you, He says, to those who reject Him. Elsewhere, 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul recites what we believe to be an early creed. He quotes this, For if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. Then he goes on to say, but God is faithful. God is faithful. Again, this does not mean sinless perfection. But rather, it means integrity. It means honesty before God. And honesty means, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I'm a mess without you. And when I do sin, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Forgive me and help me. But I believe in you. I believe that you lived and died for me and rose for me. I trust you for my only way to heaven. Be earnest in your confession to the Father. Be earnest. You must confess Christ on earth, certainly in the sight of other people. You must confess Christ with your mouth. You must confess Christ in your heart. And as you grow, you will add to your confession, my friends. And as your faith grows, your life will reflect your confession. However, if we deny Christ, He will also deny us. And so I would entreat you, my friends, to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for the hope of eternal life, and for the glory of God displayed in your life. As we're reminded in 1 John 2.23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. You can't have God as your God in your life, in your heart, if you deny His Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, but then John says, but the one who confesses the Son has the Father. You confess Him with your mouth and with your heart and you have Him. How do I know that God is mine? Do you believe Him? Do you believe He lived and died for you and rose for you? Do you believe that? If you do, you have Him. He's yours and you belong to Him. Comfort yourself with that. But that is the testimony and the confession and the prayer of every Christian. Lord Jesus, You are mine. You lived for me in the way that I couldn't. You died for me, a death I deserve to die. And you rose for me to give me your life. There's nothing better, there's nothing more central than that. And so, my friends, I would encourage you 
not to shy away. When you have opportunity, confess Christ. And I want to speak even to the, to the younger people in the congregation, children, people who are in school right now. There are going to be times when your friends are going to, to look at you, when you tell people you're a Christian, they're going to look at you and they're going to laugh in your face. They'll tell you, oh, that's, that's silly, that's, that's crazy. My parents didn't tell me that's true. And they're going to make fun of you. It happens to every single child, young person who's in school who confesses Christ. But I want to encourage you. When you tell people you believe in Jesus, you're telling the truth, you're being honest before God, and He will bless you. He will bless the profession of faith from a young believer. So don't worry when people make fun of you, okay? Don't be afraid, and don't stop confessing Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what your friends, they don't know any better. And you can be comforted by that. They don't know the truth. They don't know any better. So pray for them. Pray for them, be kind to them, and then study the Word of God, okay? Encourage your heart. Let's pray. I want to close with a prayer from Charles Spurgeon. Let this be our prayer today. Lord, let me never blush to own Thee in all companies. Work in me a bold spirit by Thy Holy Spirit. Let me confess Thy truth, whatever the spirit of the age may be. Uphold Thy church when she is most despised. Obey Thy precepts when they cost most dear. And glory in Thy name when it is most reproached. Lord, let that prayer be our true and earnest prayer even today. Help us, Lord, to confess You openly, unashamed, with love and passion and conviction. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.